Folks, good morning, and if I can add Dan's welcome uh, to you all, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, just to let you know who I am, my name is David McCullough, and I'm the assistant here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, and you're very welcome as you join with us today. As many as can are very welcome to stay back after the service and join us for some tea or coffee, which is over here uh, at the front of uh, the building. Ricky was talking earlier about seeing your breath. It's uh, almost like that this morning in here. It's getting warmer now. We'll get the heating sorted. Last week it was tropical. Uh, this week it's just edgy. So uh, we'll, we'll get it sorted uh, for, for next week. All been well. We can continue in Corinthians as we've been looking from the start of September. Uh, we're into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the story so far, or, or argument that Paul is having so far is to bring this wayward church back into line. Not because he is some overlord desiring to be on this power trip, but as we learned last week, because he genuinely cares as a father of this church. So let's come and look and see what we can learn from 1 Corinthians 5. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we gather again today, sometimes we can't believe how quickly the weeks go in. And as we've now come to this part of Corinthians, help us as we try and think what it's about and the message that it has for us today. Help us as we learn, help us as we grow, help us as we mature in the faith so that we can be like Jesus. We can be his people in this world and we can be faithful to the calling that has been placed on our lives. So help us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Corinthians 4 last week, Paul wanted the church to know very well that he was their apostolic father. In other words, he had authority over them as a congregation, as a church. And in that, it was to encourage them that he had their best in his heart. He goes even deeper to say that, I'm a father to you. You don't have very many fathers. Yes, you have many friends, many guides, many counselors, but you do not have many fathers. Well, I am your father. We finished off last week with a challenge to the Corinthian church where Paul is saying, so what way do you want it? You know the sin that you're in. You know the wrong that you're doing. Well, how would you have me come with a whip? That is, do you want me to come with all guns blazing and, and sort out your house, as it were? Or do you want me to come with love and grace? As a father, coming to encourage, coming to help. Because for Paul, it was up to the Corinthian church. He had told them how they were to live. It was now time for them to get their house in order. And what 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 do, it's two test cases. There's two issues, two major issues that have come to Paul's attention, and he's going to tackle them. And as with Paul, if you were here in our evening services throughout last year in Romans, you'll know that Paul, what we originally think Paul is trying to get at in just a simple little story that we can get lost in, he's trying to get at a bigger picture. We may not know everything that was going on in this church in 1 Corinthians 5. We don't know all the details, but there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger lesson that Paul is teaching the church in Corinth 
and the church here today. So Paul has told them in chapter 4 that he desires to come to them. He wants to be with them. He's desiring and longing to get there, to cross the Mediterranean to be with them. He's most likely writing this in Ephesus, which is just straight across the next landmass, go through a few islands, and you're there. And he hopes to get there, but he can't go there immediately, so he's going to send Timothy. Timothy, whom he brought in with him, and Timothy, whom he nurtured and matured and taught how to be an evangelist, a disciple, and a pastor uh, for Jesus Christ. So Paul wants to show them that he cares, and he sends Timothy. They have to get themselves in order. They really do. This is a church in one of the central cities in the known world that was a major trading center. And this is, they are supposed to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ. They must get themselves in order. So the test cases in 5 and 6, they all center around the same thing. It's the crisis of authority and gospel. The church is rejecting both. They don't accept Paul and his apostolic authority. They're rejecting him. They say they've moved on from Paul, that they have a special enlightenment, that they have a special spiritual input that came from beyond Paul and the teaching of the gospel. And because they've abandoned that, they've also abandoned the truth of the gospel. So Paul, in these two chapters, we'll look at five this week, six next week, Paul wants to say, get back to the gospel. Get back to the teaching of not just me, one apostle, but of the apostles. Paul never was in this for his one-man show. He was in it with his brothers as apostles. So into chapter 5, uh, page 1147, Paul starts by laying out the issue that he wants to address. And verse 1 tells us, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. It's an issue of incest. This is where someone within this Corinthian church is having sexual relations with the wife of his father. And he's getting away with it. And it's fine, according to the Corinthian church. But Paul says this is not fine. Because even the pagans, even the people group that you came from, they get up to things unbelievable sexually. But they don't even go this far. Now we should draw a line here and just look into what the background of this would be. Let's not immediately jump and think that this is his mother. If it would have been his mother, it would have said the word mother. The word that's used is wife. And in the ancient Near East cultures that would have been in the Grecian world, there was three types of women that a man could have. The first one would be what they would call a lover, a prostitute, to meet the needs of the pleasures that he would have. The second group would be concubines, to look after his body, to, to service him as it were, to wash, to heal wounds, to, to do that, concubines. And then thirdly, a wife to legitimize the children that he would have. And not just one of each, but perhaps many of each. 
So whenever Paul is saying, the wife of your father or the wife of his father, it's not his mother. Let's not jump and think that that's what it is. But still within the family unit, it is recognized as sexual immorality. Even the pagans don't go that far. Paul looks at them and says, and you're proud of yourselves. This is what is going on, and you are proud of it. Verse 2, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out your, of your fellowship the man who did this? He can't understand it. This, this is going on, and it's so contrary to what Scripture teaches throughout the Old Testament and whatever they have of the New. It also goes against the culture of their own day. And he can't believe that it is going on. It is going against the gospel that he taught and the gospel that he shared with this church. And he says, you are proud. They're proud of their sin. Verse 3, Paul is trying to assert his apostolic authority. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. So Paul says, it doesn't matter if I'm there or not. Just like last week, we thought it was a case that when the cat's away, the mice will play. And he's saying, no, you can't, you can't play that game anymore. Just because I'm out of your sight, just because I'm out of your presence, doesn't mean that I don't have authority over you as appointed through Jesus Christ. He says, I know what's going on. I've already passed judgment, and you're not going to get away with it. He says in verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, then this is what you do. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The punishment is that this man will be handed over to Satan. Now, what, is, what does that mean? It means that he'll be thrown out of the church. In the thinking of New Testament times, there were two realms. Yes, God had sovereignty over all the world, but Satan was active. And for them, Satan was active in the world. The church was the place where Christ was worshipped and adored as the Son of God. But in the world, that's where Satan was rampant. And so they're saying, Paul is saying, send him out into the world. Dismiss him from the presence of the fellowship of believers. Send him to the place where Satan is most active and send him into the world. What would be the purpose for this? Why, why hand him over to Satan? Why not try to work with him and try and work through this issue? There's two things that people believe this is why he's handed over to Satan. The purpose being that the man will be in the world and broken from fellowship. And that this jolt of reality back in the world of sin, the hope is that this would lead him back to Christ. That there would be a miss missingness in, in the fellowship that he once had, this true spiritual connection with Christ and, and with his fellow believers. He would miss it, and he would come in repentance back to the church. Most likely, the second thinking on it is that he will be in the world and broken from fellowship and will most likely die of his lusts and passions in natural time. 
but Paul intends to see him counted among the Lord's people at the end of time. That's why he says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This is Paul's theology coming in here. Paul believes that you cannot lose your true and first love. In other words, coming to faith in a genuine way, we are saved. A genuine conversion. No matter how far we may remove ourselves from the presence and the company of God, we are still His because Paul says we can never lose our first love. And there is a difference, a very big difference, for those who come in a moment of emotion, not fully thinking through what it means to become a believer in Jesus Christ, who fall away, where we considered that their conversion was not genuine, was not truly of the Spirit, but rather emotion and of this world. Paul is expecting that this believer will be seen and counted among those of the Lord's people at the end of time, even though he is now expelled in the hope that he will come back in his own time to be forgiven and to be entered into the fellowship. But even if that does not happen, even if he is handed over to Satan and the world, Paul believes that he will be counted on the day of the Lord. So in this first little chunk of verses 1 to 5, what is going on that Paul wants to tackle? Firstly, it's the physical issue, which is incest. But that, for Paul, is just the, it's the blue touch paper that's lit, and he's about to go into what the real thing is. And it's the spiritual issue, which is their arrogance. Verse 2 tells us that they are proud. There's an arrogance with their sin. They've been taught They've been taught a key thing that we hold so dear, and that is the simple word grace. They've been told grace means that you will be forgiven no matter what you've done. Well, grace can be abused. Because we can say, well, then it doesn't matter what I do, because I'll always be forgiven. So I can sin, be forgiven, sin again, be forgiven, sin again, be forgiven, and the cycle continues and continues and continues. But the gospel says no. Scripture says that no one plays God the fool. There is an abuse of grace within this Corinthian church. They see that grace frees them from what they see as laws and rules and regulations of the perfect life that God would have for them. And so they abuse His grace. Secondly, They also see that their special spiritual gifts that they have been given or that they perceive they have been given rises them beyond Paul and his cute ways of of teaching and telling them how they are to live. In other words, Paul, you're old-fashioned. Get with it and get with the modern way of doing church. They think they have become so much better than the teaching of the apostles through their own philosophy through their own arguments, and through their own debates. This is their arrogance. They think that they are better than Paul, and they think that they are better than God, that they can play him, that he will dance to the tune of their fiddle. And Paul says, stop being arrogant. The church in Corinth 
If you were to look at it and look at the world, you would see no difference whatsoever because of what was going on. And this is what Paul sees as the gospel issue. You are no different. You're in the world and you're off the world. There's no difference between the two of you. And yet you claim to be so different because you are found in Jesus and not in the world. So Paul moves on in verses 6 to 8 to pick this arrogance up. And he says right in verse 6, your boasting is not good. And then he gives them this wonderful little illustration. He brings them straight into the kitchen. And he says, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. I am the son of a baker. We had a home bakery in that we physically lived above a bakery. Now, can you imagine the smell every morning of fresh bread? I would have to walk along this long corridor that had racks on it full of bread to get to our kitchen where we would have breakfast. I probably shouldn't admit to this, but every now and again, I'd come and as you cut bread, as you break bread to take the loaves apart, it's left with a little slither of skin that if you pull off when it's just cooked, it's the nicest thing you can ever taste on a cold winter's morning. Let's just say current health and safety regulations probably would have had a word to say about that. I grew up with this idea of yeast and bread. I knew that at 7.30 after waking us up, my mum would get in the car and go to another bakery and buy yeast. She would come back and that yeast would be used for the next day. She would buy half a pound of yeast. And this half a pound of yeast, it was nothing more than something that would sit in your hand, would produce four dozen, five dozen loaves of bread. It would cause it to rise. It would give the bread its energy to look like bread, to be light, to be airy and fluffy, so that it would be enjoyed by those who would buy it. And I could not understand how something so little could do something so great. How this yeast could do that job and get through everything. In a bakery, it's not just a Kenwood mixer you have. It's a, it's a huge beast of a machine with a, a huge tub where everything's thrown in and mixed, and the yeast gets thrown in with the rest, and it's mixed through the whole batch so that the whole batch of bread will rise and be the bread that we know. Paul says, this is what's happening your church Something that seems so small that you're not worrying about has been in the mix and it's been put round your whole gathering and fellowship and it will grow. And he even describes what it is. He says that the old yeast, that this yeast that is infecting the fellowship, it's the yeast of malice and wickedness the things that are not right for a person who says they're following Jesus. He says, you let it happen. You let this malice and you let this wickedness happen in your own place of worship, and it grows, and it grows. And before you know it, a whole batch of people are affected and infected by this sin. Our postmodern world 
teaches us it's about the individual. So in church life, we begin to see sin as individual sin. And yes, that is true. We all sin on an individual level. But when it comes as a corporate body, or to become a corporate body of followers of Jesus, one person's sin affects us all. We are not islands. We are to be together to help each other, to nurture each other, and to edify each other. So the image that Paul is giving here, if we don't as a congregation help each other, as a church help each other in our walks with Jesus, well then we are all guilty of the sin of each other because we are not helping each other in leading each other further and closer to Jesus. He says, be like the festival. Or the festival means the Passover that time where the Jews would get together to remember their exodus from Egypt, where they didn't have time to put yeast in the bread because they had to go, and so they had flat bread. They had unleavened bread. He says, be like that. Don't allow this yeast in, because the bread that will be produced, he describes it, bread without yeast of sincerity and of truth. In other words, purity of motives and purity of action. This is what Paul says we're to be like, unleavened bread. Do not allow something to fester and grow within the church because it will affect everyone and therefore will discredit the gospel message. For Paul, it is all about the gospel. If the church is not living in a way that is gospel-centered, well then the church is losing its power in the world because it is tolerating sin. Tolerating sin and excusing evil is not the gracious thing to do. All too often we can say, well, we can let it go. We can brush it under the carpet and we can say, it will be fine. Paul says it won't be fine. We think we're being nice to people by not helping them think through the sin and the wrong that is in our lives. He says, that's not gracious at all. You're misleading them. You're walking them down the garden path where there is no true recognition that Jesus came to save souls and save sinners like me. Tolerating sin and excusing evil is not the gracious thing to do. It is the misleading thing to do. He moves into the final section of this chapter 9 to 13. And he says, it's because of how you interact with the world. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. Uh, It's there. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So the first thing to clear up, if you're wondering, he says, I have written to you in my letter. Paul has already written a letter. There is a a first, first Corinthians that we do not have anymore. There's no record of it at all. It has been lost in time. We recognize, because it says it here, and, and 
the world that studies these things says, yeah, it's likely that Paul had, had another letter sent to the church. It dealt with things like sexual immorality or, or with discipline within the church, but there was another letter, and this is most likely his second letter. And he's written to them before, and they still are not getting it. Paul is, as the crow flies, 230 miles away, and he's still hearing all these things that they're not following what he's already taught. And so he's added again, saying, I have written to you. Listen to me again. Have nothing to do with sexually immoral people. But he says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. Paul says, that's the world. Why should we expect anything different from the world than to be immoral? Because that is the realm of Satan. Paul's issue is those within the church who have associated with those outside the church and have gone down their way of life and have come back into the church and are now promoting this way of life within the church. He says, you can't get away from living in the world. You have to interact and trade with people of the world. And they may be up to all kinds of things, but you still have to work with them. That's just natural society. He says, I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, that is a Christian, a brother or a sister, someone found in Christ. Don't associate with them if they are sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterator or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Do not eat a meal with them. Do not let them influence them. Do not even let them near the table of the Lord. That is communion as we would recognize it. He says, don't even have a meal with them. Do not allow that yeast to grow in you. Rather be unleavened bread. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what, uh, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Paul, even later in his next letter to the Corinthians, says, Stay away from the things of the world because they'll only bring you down spiritually. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And of course, this light and darkness comes from John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light is the picture of goodness and the things of God. Darkness is a picture of sin. So Paul is not judging the world. He says, God will do that. That's God's job to judge the world. But what we are to do is judge within the church, not out of selfish ambition or motive, but to correct, instruct, rebuke. We are to see where there is sin, and we are to get rid of it. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge the, those outside. And he says, here's what you're to do with what's going on in the church. Expel the wicked man from among you. So here's Paul. He's got his letter, or this part of his letter, the first test case in asserting apostolic authority and ensuring the truth of the gospel. What's it all about? 
It's not about incest. It's about discipline within the church and a truth for the gospel. We don't like the word discipline. We don't like discipline, full stop. We never liked to be disciplined as children, and I'm sure we do not like to discipline uh, as adults. Yet Paul says it is a mark of the church, that we are to biblically look at each other and look at ourselves to see where there is sin and deal with it. Again, tolerating sin and excusing evil is not the gracious thing to do. Verse 4 tells us that discipline is a whole church issue. How were they to do all of this? They were to do it when they were gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of Paul would be there, and with that position of Christ and the apostolic authority of Paul, then there would be power in that congregation, in that church, and therefore they could discipline in a way that was seen to be <coughs> transparent and accountable. If the church becomes guilty of sin, or ignores sin, sorry, it becomes guilty also. Paul is ultimately saying sin needs to be rooted out so that it doesn't damage the body of Christ. And there is a distinction, and we must recognize the distinction. Sin is sin. We cannot get away from that fact. But there are sins of omission. In other words, the sins that we, that we commit that we don't even recognize simply because of the sinful condition of the fall. In other words, the sin that's naturally in us that just happens. And then there's the sin of commission, the sins that we choose to do, the habitual sins that we do time and time and time again. This is what the Corinthian church was at, habitual sinning. He says, root it out. There's never an excuse for sin, whether it's omission or commission. But root it out. We must take it seriously. Jesus made it his life's work. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinner. Sinners to repentance, Luke 5, verses 31 to 32. And we must recognize that sin impacts each of us. 1 John 1 and 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I've spent some time this week uh, with colleagues uh, and friends who are at the same stage of me in ministry. We had some time together to chat through how things are going for us in life in general and within our congregations where we're placed. And it struck me as I heard myself speak and as I listened that sin is everywhere within our lives. I don't stand up as someone who says, I have it sorted. I am without sin. I would be a fool. I would deny what is true. I recognize the sin that is in my life and the sin that I struggle with day and daily. The sin to be faithful or desiring, I desire to be faithful to this calling, but yet sin creeps in that things take over my time where I don't spend the time that I should on what I should be doing for you as a congregation. The sin that creeps in of, of how I think of people and how I think of situations. The sin of arrogance, the sin of pride, the sin of thinking I'm better than someone else. 
as we listened to ourselves, we came to the realization that that we are sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace. A grace that is not to be abused, but a grace that is to be lived and a grace that is to be celebrated. I need to deal with my sin. I need to deal with my sin so that you do not become guilty of letting my sin run. And so it is with each of us. We must deal with our sin so that the rest of this fellowship of believers who meet here, we are united together in this congregation and community, that our personal sin does not reflect into the life and the body, the heart and the soul of this congregation. We must throw ourselves on Jesus as the only one who can make us right. And dare we say it, and I think we need to affirm it, because the Bible does, that if we do not deal with our own personal sin, well then we must have the guts to discipline for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the growth of the church, and for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Dan was very right when he said this is a difficult passage. It's a very difficult passage. We immediately think it's incest and then think it's easy because we, we, that, that thought reviles us so much. But actually the deeper issue that Paul is getting at is saying, look at your lives. As Paul says, he looks at his. He's very vocal and he's saying, you know, I have my sin, his thorn in his flesh, whatever that was, he had to deal with his sin day and daily. So we all need to deal with our sin day and daily so that we do not all become guilty of letting sin grow like yeast within this congregation. I recognize this morning there are things that I've said that people will not like. I recognize that there are things that have been said that people will disagree with, and that's fine. We can have a conversation about things like that, but I have a conviction the church is no place for sin. We are to be different from the world. We are to be gospel-centered in all that we do and grace-filled. But we are not to be fools in the eyes of the church. Yes, fools in the eyes of the world, as Paul said, but not in the eyes of the church worldwide in allowing sin to run rampant and we ignore it and we become arrogant because we, are th we think we are better than the gospel or indeed than God himself. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we've talked about a topic today that is something that's uncomfortable for us. It's, it's something that we don't like really to talk about, but yet it's here in your word. So therefore, we must deal with it. We must handle it carefully. 
and we must put it into action. It cannot be something that we can allow to sit. But now that we have thought about it and now that we have listened to your word as we find it in the scriptures and what is offered in a, in a, in a sermon, help us. We recognize that we are broken people because of how we are influenced by sin. But yet we know the truth that Jesus sets us free. So save us from sinning. Help us with however you desire to do it. The working of your spirit in our conscience by putting friends along our pathway so that we'll be veered away from the temptation of sin and help us to help each other so that we can grow as a community and as a fellowship of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, in his name alone. Amen.